Would you turn in your Bibles with me to uh, Philippians chapter 3? This morning we'll be looking at verse 12 to the end of the chapter, verse 21. You may be surprised to see me up here again. Um, and I'm surprised. It was about Tuesday when I got a call from my son, Dan. And we were talking just about general things. And he said, now I've got something a little bit hard to ask you. And I went, okay. He said, can you preach Sunday? And that was Tuesday. So I said, well, he said, Eric, um, we're behind where you guys are on Philippians now it, on the east. And um, so it's going to be hard for Eric. And we just wondered if you could step in. So I'm stepping in. And... Um, pray that the Lord will use this time and the time that I've had in the Word in this chapter. It's very similar to when I was asked to speak a few weeks ago on verses out of chapter 2, and that was, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The title of this sermon is, The Lifestyle and Goal of the true and faithful. The lifestyle and goal is what I came up with. And the question before us this morning is what should be the goal of every Christian, the primary goal in this life? How should we be living in this present age that we are in, this world that is our current home? And what is the lifestyle that will get us to that goal? I had to do a lot of thinking this week. The passage was good for me because what Paul is doing here is reminding us that there's really only one purpose for which we ought to be moving forward. One thing to focus our attention on, to keep our eyes on, one goal, and one lifestyle that's going to achieve that end. This is probably, in my mind, one of the most important sections of Scripture to think about as a Christian. Now, let's talk about this world a little bit. And I'm going to go to a page in which I've put some verses on this week. And I want to read what Paul, in many other places, says about this world this age that we live in. And by the way, you could probably come up with about six ages altogether from the beginning of Scripture to the very end, to the new heavens and new earth. We have the age before the fall, which was evidently fairly short, when Adam and Eve sinned. And all of a sudden, things changed from a very positive age, a very spiritual age, fellowship with God age, to sin and rebellion. And the next thing we get is in Genesis chapter 6, it's the fall. God says, all they want to do is do evil all the time. I'm through with them. Except he finds Noah and his wife and his family, and he spares them to begin again. And then comes another age up until Abraham, and God calls Abraham and wants to begin again with a people for his own possession to follow him. 
Abraham and his descendants, and then we get to Moses and the coming of the law, the giving of the old covenant. And then we come to the New Testament when God says, I'm sending my son and I'm beginning a new covenant and the old covenant is passed away and the new covenant has come and I'm going to reach out to the Gentile nations as well and bring Jew and Gentile to myself through my son and his death on the cross. That's the age that we're in now. But what kind of age is this? Listen to some of the things that Paul says. Galatians 1.4, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age. Is that the world we live in? That's what Paul says, according to the will of God, our God and Father. Listen to Ephesians 5.16, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Okay, when do they not get evil? Paul says they're evil. He says the present evil age. In Ephesians 6.10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He's still here. He's still present, and he's still scheming. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. We were praying this morning up here, and we were praying about this beautiful creation to enjoy. And there are many things in this world and in this age which we as believers can enjoy that God's given to us. But did you know that this creation, the second law of thermodynamics says, is winding down? It's decaying? And did you know that this creation also, according to Paul in Romans chapter 8, is crying out, is groaning, is groaning. The creation, all of the material creation that we see is groaning figuratively for what? The day of our redemption, the second coming of Jesus Christ. This whole creation is groaning for that day. You know why? Because that's the day that he brings judgment on this earth and all of those who are unbelievers with fire from heaven and the day in which he glorifies the saints. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 brings those two together very clearly. And then comes the new age, the final age. Over and over in Scripture, you read about, in the, especially from Matthew forward to the end, to Revelation, you read about this age and the age to come. 
and the age to come is the new heavens and new earth, we're still living in a time of sin and wickedness. And our mission largely is much like the man in Pilgrim's Progress. It's to find the narrow gate that leads to the new heavens and new earth and leads to fellowship with God and with Jesus Christ and living with him forever and ever. And it involves finding that narrow gate, going through it, bringing others through it, and then walking with them, running with them the race till we get to the end. But folks, we're not at the end. We are not at the end right now. The end is still out here. There's two, well, rather, there's three parts to our salvation. We have been saved in the past. We are being saved in the present through sanctification. And we will be saved completely and finally and fully when Jesus Christ comes that final time in judgment and for his own to glorify us and give us a body like unto his own. And until that day, we won't be perfect. That's why Paul says in these verses, I am striving for perfection, but I'm not there. You know why? Because we live in a sinful body with its own desires, which is dying, which cannot remain because it's still under the curse. We, who we really are, have been saved and brought to life. We've been resurrected because we've been made a two-part being. We've been made spirit in the image of God to fellowship with him. And in our salvation, when the penalty of sin was removed, when we came to Christ and he bore our sin and the penalty is gone, he gave us new life through faith in Christ. Christ died and was resurrected. And Paul says in Romans chapter 6, 1 to 7, we were given new life so that we can walk and overcome our bodies, which are still decaying, which are still weak, which still have their own desires. But that's the world we live in. It's a world where Satan is still the prince. And all of his emissaries are our enemy and our chief enemy. And Paul recognizes this. And he recognizes when he writes these words, our salvation is not complete. We're two-thirds there. But there's one more to go before we become perfect. And it's at the coming of Christ. Listen to these words. And I'm going to start back in some of the, the verses that Jefferson was considering last week. And I want especially for you to look with me at verse 8. <clears throat> Starting with verse 8 of chapter 3, and then we're going to read down through this whole section. Paul says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, and that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I'm going to stop right there for a minute. The threefold plan of salvation are in verses 9, 10, and 11 that we just read. Notice verse 9 again. I count, rather, he says, to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own because when we believe in Christ, we have his righteousness. We're forgiven. His righteousness, which was perfect, is put to our account. We don't have that experientially. We have it because he reckoned it to us. He imputed it to us. It's his. It's perfect. That's justification. That's the first step in our salvation. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. Look at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Do you know what else happened? Sanctification comes into view. I'm being delivered from the power of sin in the present because he not only made me a new being inside, in the inner man, he sent his spirit to live within me that I might overcome my flesh, that I might overcome Satan and all of his minions, putting on the full armor of God, walking in the power of the spirit. I am being saved, but I am not all the way. You know, when we say sometimes, I am saved and I'm so thankful I'm saved. We're two-thirds saved. We're not saved fully yet. And we won't be. Listen again to what Paul says in verse 11. This is his goal. This is what he wants in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We've been made alive spiritually. We've been given the power of the Spirit to live but folks, if you're like me, you're confessing sin all the time. Saying, Lord, forgive me for that look. Forgive me for that word. Forgive me for that attitude. We're struggling, we're fighting, and we don't always win. And Paul is focused on and looking for the coming of Jesus Christ, that he might have a glorified body, that he might be raised in the outer man and accompany that which has already taken place in the inner man, that he might be complete and without sin and without temptation and without an enemy and without death, a body that will live forever. That's Paul's primary goal in life to reach that stage. That's what he says right here. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, 
but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that which, for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. Christ laid hold of us, folks, to get us all the way through and get us to the final day when we will be glorified and our body will be new. I had last night, almost today, word from Florida that one of my granddaughters there, Kristen, Kristen, the one that is named for you, um, she had her first child last night, just before midnight. And it occurred to me as I'm thinking about that and praying for her and praying for that child, that we are born into this world dying. This body that we have now is dying. We need a new body. We were created to be a two-part person. By the way, when we die and go to heaven, it says to be absent from this body, when this body goes into the ground, to be absent from it is to be present with the Lord if you're a believer. We're in his presence. But guess what? We're like the angels. Our spirits are there. That inner man part of us is there with Christ now if someone who's a believer has died and their body has gone into the ground. They are with Christ. But guess what Revelation chapter 6 points out? Those in heaven are crying out, how long, O oh Lord? You see, they're in heaven, and the three-step process for salvation is, yet is, is not complete. It's uncompleted. Until the day, the day, the hour, that Jesus Christ comes again. We will not be perfect as spirit human beings until that day. And that's why even in heaven they're crying out, how long, O Lord, until Jesus comes again. We're living in a fallen world. We're living in an evil world. We are to be Christ. We're to be sanctified. We're to become conformed to the image of the Son. And that is the lifestyle that we are to live in order to get to that third step. Do you remember what the writer of Hebrews says? I'm just going to turn there for a moment and read to you out of Hebrews chapter 3, just a couple of verses. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And this is the key verse. For we have become a partaker of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. This is why Paul is so concerned about finishing the race. Because it will show that he is a true partaker of Christ if he holds fast, if he keeps his eye on the goal, 
if he lives the life that will continue and that will declare that he is Christ, that day is coming for him and coming for us. So let's keep reading with what we see here, with what Paul is saying. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He chose us. He laid hold of us. He gave us a new spirit. He put his spirit to live within us and to overcome, gave us the power to overcome sin and to be sanctified, and yet we keep on confessing. And yet sometimes we are defeated. Paul says in verse 13, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in God. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's one thing that consumes Paul. Remember he even talked about this in Philippians 1 and 2? He said, it doesn't make any difference whether I die or live. I just want to honor him. And, and then he goes on to say, and it's better to die because then I'm with him. But now he wants me to stay on here for you. Paul knows that the step that's coming is the one that will complete his salvation. And he presses for that goal. He looks for that, for the upward Press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I had to ask myself this week, Dwight, is this your goal? Is this what you're striving for? Is this what you're longing for, focusing on the day that you will be complete? The day that you will have a new body without tempting you, the day that you will become perfect with him and complete forever, and with him on the new heavens and new earth forevermore, is that what you're striving for? Or are you content with the things of this life? Are you happy with what's going on here? Are you satisfied and totally at comfortable and totally at home here? And I had to do some soul searching, folks. I want to be like Paul. I want to long for that day when he comes again, when the battles of this life are over. So often we forget that we're living in an evil age. Now, we're not to be troubled by the evil that's in the age. There's plenty of evil to look at in our day. We're not to be troubled by that. We're to focus on the future, the age to come, the coming of Christ, the being complete in Him. And while we're here, leading people to the narrow gate, I started reading Pilgrim's Progress again just in the last week or two. And I was reminded 
of here's this man with this weight on his back who's heard the word and told there's a narrow gate that only few go through and he's running towards that and a couple of neighbors are running with him to find out what's going on and they get closer but then they decide not not for me but he's running for the narrow gate to go through the gate and make his way to the celestial city and to bring everyone that he can with him are we focused is our goal Paul's goal is it to focus on Christ in the age to come and the completion, the resurrection of the body so that we will be complete and we will be, by the way, this pursuit, according to Paul, gives Christ the most honor and glory of all. Because at the end, he says, here are my children. These are the ones that I died for. These are the ones that I paid the price that they might be forgiven and sanctified and glorified. It's over. And he gets the honor and the glory. And also because getting there, focusing there, there's a lifestyle that must be lived. Let's read on about this lifestyle. Verse 15, let us therefore, as many as are perfect. Whoops, Paul, you just said you weren't perfect. What's that mean? How does that fit in? Well, there's two ways you could probably look at this. You could translate this word here as mature. Those of us who are mature, those of us who have a relationship with you, those of us who are being sanctified, that's one way to look at this word. Or another way would be to look at it, those of us who are perfect in that we have been delivered from the penalty of sin. Not perfect in completion, but perfect in our relationship to sin. We're no longer under condemnation. Even when we sin as a believer, we confess that sin, but we're not under condemnation because Christ paid for past, present, and future sins. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. If your attitude is not where Paul's is, and, and you know him, he's going to reveal your attitude is wrong. And that Paul's is right. As many as are perfect, have this attitude, have this mindset have this way of thinking. And the way of thinking is, my salvation is not complete, it's not over. I am here, and I am to do the Lord's work, and I am to be conformed to the image of Christ every day, and to live like Him, and to walk according to the Word of God by the power of the Spirit. But I am on a mission and my mission is to reach the finish of the race. It's to get the prize. And I'm not there. I'm still running. Verse 16, he says, however, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have arrived. What's that standard? The righteousness of Christ. Being conformed to his image. The perfect God-man who lived on this earth without sin. 
that's my, my way of getting to the goal. That's what brings honor to him because I can't get there unless I'm becoming conformed to his image. I don't get it. I won't know. Now, when you get to verse 17, Paul says, there's a third part here. Paul talks about his goal. Then he talks about what we should be doing in following. But listen to verse 17 now, because this, this brings it up as well. Brethren, join in following my example. And observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even weeping. Think of this. As Paul writes, he's weeping as he tells them about these other people. Now, why, why would you think Paul would be weeping as he, as he warns them about some evil, false brethren? Why is he weeping? Could be one of two things or maybe both. He might be weeping because he's thinking of the people that these false teachers lead astray. And he's weeping over that. And that would be a good thing to weep over. And he also might be weeping for the false teachers who have succumbed to satanic teaching and satanic influence. But he is weeping. And he says, follow my example and observe those who walk like I do. He's not the only one. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Why are they enemies? They say they're friends. Paul has got to be thinking of in the churches, in those early churches, there were two false teachings, primarily. Judaizers who would say, you know, you need to put yourself under the law. You need to go back and put yourself under the law. You need to be circumcised because we can do this. We can keep the law. And yet they were, they were portraying that they were followers of Christ. They were giving in to their flesh. Their flesh was saying, we can do this, just like they did back in Moses' day when they said he comes down from the mountain and gives them the law, and they say to him, we got it, we can do it. No, you can't. The law is given to show you that you can't do it. You have to do it perfectly. You can't. But Judaizers were saying they were leading, and Paul says, do not follow them. Do not follow your flesh that says you can do this. You can't do it. It's only by the power of Christ and the Spirit of God within you. And then also we have the other group, the Gnostics. The Gnostics says if you just have special knowledge, if you just know what we know, you would know this. You can't do anything right in the body anyway. It, it's not going to heaven. The Spirit's just going to heaven. The body's not going to heaven. You can't do anything right anyway, so just live any way you want to in the body. And you're going to get there. So you've got one group saying it's, it's liberalism. You can do anything you want to. 
And you, you can get to heaven no matter what you do in the body because it doesn't make a difference. And the other group saying, no, in your body you have the power to make your way to God. Both are fleshly, both are false. You make your way through Christ. You focus on Christ. You, you only walk by the power of the Spirit. For many walk of whom I've often told you, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Don't follow them. They will lead you to the pit, whose end is destruction. Their enemies, their end is destruction. By the way, that doesn't mean annihilation. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that it's an eternal destruction separated from Christ and suffering in hell forever. When the Bible uses the word destruction, it doesn't mean you're done away with and you just don't exist anymore. No, you will exist. It's eternal destruction because you will be conscious and you will be suffering for the rest of eternity and it will not end. That's where these people are heading. They're into destruction. And whose glory, excuse me, I, I skipped one a phase there, one phrase, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite. Their God is not the living God. Their God is, the, the Greek word there, the literal word is belly. Their God is their belly. Their God is their appetite. Their God is what pleases them, what makes them happy in this body. That's their God. And then he goes on to say, and whose glory is in their shame. Think of this, the two groups, Judaizers, Gnostics. One promoting, I can do it, I can work my way to God on my own. The other one saying, I can do anything I want to, I can follow the desires of my flesh, and it makes no difference. Both of those things are a shame to God. They're shameful to say, I can do it, and to say, it doesn't matter what I it does matter whose glory is in the things that are shameful that's what they glory in who let their who set their minds on earthly things this life this life is where they're happy this life is where they're content folks paul wasn't content here he wasn't content because the process of salvation wasn't complete. He did not have a new body yet when there would be no more temptation, no more sin, no more death. There set their minds on earthly things. Now notice this, the very end of this. Paul says in verse 20 and 21, brings it to a conclusion. He's writing to us, he's writing to them in this evil age that we live. For our citizenship is in heaven. It's not here on this earth. It never has been. We, we have maybe our passports and our visas and it's all based on citizenship. I'm a citizen of the United States but I'm not really, not ultimately. 
My citizenship is not in this life, in this world, in this age. It is in him. It's in heaven and the age to come, the new heavens and the new earth. And he's reminding us all of that. Don't think that you belong here. You're here for a time, and you're to be focused on this goal to complete the race and to run a good race. Isn't it interesting that Paul says in 2 Timothy, in fact, I want you to turn there with me, 2 Timothy 4, when he gets to the end of his life, notice the things that he says. This is 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I'm going to begin reading with verse 1 and go to verse 8. And listen, listen to his words as he writes to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. He was ours, maybe a day or two away from entering into heaven and being there with Christ and waiting for the day of his return. Paul says, I fought the good fight and I have finished the course and I have kept the faith. He did keep the faith, but he would never say in his own strength, would he? Do you remember what he said in chapter 2 of this book, Philippians? Work out your salvation in fear and trembling for... It is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Notice verse 8. I never thought of this till this week, and it doesn't make me right. I've often wondered what the crown of righteousness is. I think I know. I'm not going to die on this hill, but I think it's having a new body and the salvation being complete. Listen to this. In the future, he's at the end of this life. He's fought a good fight. He's looking back now. He says, in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. What day? The day of his return. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. What's the crown of righteousness? I think it may well be the completion of our salvation, the glorified, resurrected body to live in with Christ forever and ever. Back to Philippians chapter 2, we'll finish up. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait a Savior, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. He's going to transform us, folks. We will be complete. There was no more battle to be fought, no more enemy, no more death, sin, temptation. The new heavens and new earth are the age to come, and there won't be any other. That's what's ahead. That's what Paul is focused on. That's what drives him. That's what consumes his life. And the lifestyle that he lives is in conformity to Christ. Nothing is more important to that, to Paul. He will do anything righteously to get there because he knows the journey's not over. He's like Pilgrim in Pilgrim's progress that is heading towards the celestial city. The weight now is off his back, but he isn't there yet. He's still progressing. My question to us this morning, and think of this too, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, Paul again writing, one day Christ is going to appear in the air. And all those who are there with him will be with him when he comes. And they will be changed first. They will be glorified in their body first. And then we, who were on the earth when he comes, will be glorified in a moment, in an instant. We will be together with him both those who are there now and those of us who are here when he comes will be united and glorified once and for all in that moment, on that day. Paul says, I am focused on that. My goal is the resurrection of my body and I want to run a straight course and I want to be as close to Christ as I can as I go through that and bringing others to him through the narrow gate and helping them get down the path as he was helping these Philippians as he wrote to them. I don't know about you, but I, as I said, I had to ask myself some serious questions this week. Is that my focus? I don't know that it has always been, but I've been reminded and I want it to be. Is it your focus? Don't get caught up with the things in this life. Don't don't be troubled by the things that are going on that are evil, that are bad. Live for Christ no matter what it means. You have nothing to do but gain. Even if they take our lives for following him, it's a game. We need to spend time pondering this that Paul is saying. We need to think about it and ask, is that what we're living for? Is that our goal? Our longing? 
our hearts? Is everything aimed in that direction? Or does something else, is something else holding us back? Beware of the false brethren who would guide you in other ways. Follow Paul and those who walk like him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for our Savior, for his life, his death, his love, his example. We thank you for the Apostle Paul. And we pray that we might be like them, especially like our Savior. Keep us focused, Father, and help us remember what the lifestyle is that will maintain that focus. We long for the day when Jesus Christ, when the trumpet will sound and the angel will shout and he will descend and we will be made like him after those that are with him. But we will be made like him. What a day that will be. Keep us faithful until that time. Keep us in the race, running for the prize and bringing others along with us as we have the opportunity. May this church be characterized by Paul's thinking, by Paul's goal, by Paul's lifestyle. We pray this in Jesus' name.